This is the Policy Options Podcast. I'm Julie Bijan. Tax-free savings accounts were designed to help lower-income Canadians put money away for retirement. But a decade into the program, new research shows that TFSAs are primarily benefiting higher-income savers. Not only do they have more money to put into TFSAs, but higher-income Canadians also have access to better financial advice than those on the other end of the income spectrum. If lower-income Canadians aren't getting the advice to make the switch from an RRSP to a TFSA, that's a problem, and one that will decrease their government benefits in retirement. Today on the podcast, I speak to Richard Shellington, a statistician specializing in poverty measurement, tax policy, and low-income supports. We discuss the implications of his recent IRPP study. Are low-income savers still in the lurch? TFSAs at 10 years, as well as how government can fix this policy flaw. Here's our conversation. First, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. So we're here today to talk about your new IRPP paper on the benefits of TFSAs for low-income seniors. Now, first, let's Get started at the basics. So what is a tax-free savings account, and how did the TFSA come about in Canada? TFSAs are now about 10 years old. They were introduced in 2009, and TFSAs are similar to RRSPs. They're a way for people to save money, and many of them will save money for retirement. They work in a similar fashion to RSPs in that you put the money in when you're younger and then you can take the money out when you're older. But they work differently from RSPs in that you're contributing income that's already been taxed. And therefore, when you take the money out, the TFSA withdrawals are not subject to income tax. So you get taxed in the year that you contribute as opposed to the year that you take out. That's right. With RSP, you get a tax deduction when you put the money in. And with the TFSA, you've paid your tax, you're putting money into the TFSA that's already been taxed. So when you take it out, it's not taxed at that time. And the advantage of a TFSA also is when you take the money out, it's tax-free, your original contribution is tax-free, but also the interest or dividend or capital gain earned by the money in the TFSA is also tax-free. And The other advantage of the TFSA is because the money is tax-free, it's not being reported on your income tax return, which means it doesn't affect old-age security. Your old-age security, your OAS, is not reduced by TFSA withdrawals. And if you're getting the Guaranteed Income Supplement, GIS, it's also not reduced by TFSA withdrawals. So we're going to come to that in a few minutes, but just before we do... RSPs are sort of what you think of when you think of saving for retirement. But for about a decade, we've also had this TFSA tool. I'm wondering about how it came about and who it was geared toward. Well, when TFSAs were proposed 10 years ago, there was support across the political spectrum. More conservative economists welcomed the idea of having more tax assistance for saving for retirement. And they also wanted a move away from taxing income towards taxing consumption. So they supported the idea. And some of the people who advocate on behalf of lower income seniors like myself, we thought it was a good idea because it would allow people to save for retirement 
and save in a way that they could avoid the way that RRSPs will reduce your GIS. So it was a more efficient way for lower income seniors to save for retirement. And when TFSAs were introduced, there was a fair bit of publicity about all the advantages well, for lower income seniors of using TFSAs. So they were introduced 10 years ago, both to provide more savings room for everybody, but also to provide a mechanism for lower income seniors to more effectively save for retirement. So in your paper for the IRPP, you say that TFSA benefits are going to high income savers rather than the low income savers that they were advertised at the beginning as being so good for. Can you expand on that? Well, you can understand that a government bringing in a tax measure that is going to benefit lower income and higher income people would like to emphasize the fact that it's going to benefit lower income people because it makes it look like a progressive tax measure. The reality is that in order to take advantage of TFSA, you first of all have to have money that you can afford to save. So it's going to be used more by higher income people, but it's also available for lower income people who have the money to save for retirement. They also need to have advice to put the money in there. As a savings mechanism that has a tax advantage, it's available to any Canadian with cash to save. But of course, higher income people are going to have more cash to save. So it is going to disproportionately advantage higher income people. That's kind of unavoidable. But those of us in favor of it thought it would have the benefit of also benefiting lower income people. And so how do we know that that's not happening? Well, if you look at the data on the savings of Canadians, we know that TFSAs have actually become quite popular. There are almost as many people with um, TFSAs as there are RRSPs. Now, the RRSPs have been around a lot longer, so there's more money in RRSPs, but there's still a substantial number of people with TFSAs. But of course, the higher the income, the more the money that's sitting in a TFSA and RRSPs. The thing that uh, disturbed me about the pattern and one of the motivations for the article that IRPP published was that for the people who are likely to be on the guaranteed income supplement on GIS when they retire, 90% of their savings money was still in RSPs. So we've had 10 years with TFSAs available, which would be by far a much better, a much more intelligent choice for lower income Canadians saving for retirement than RSPs. And yet still 90% of the savings of these people who are going to likely be on GIS when they retire is sitting in RSPs. So the advantages of TFSAs are not being realized because people haven't changed their savings behavior. They have not been informed. On that note, a lot of your paper is devoted to explaining what exactly the benefits are of a low-income saver investing in a TFSA. Can I get you to elaborate a bit on those advantages and why low-income savers are leaving money on the table with RRSPs? Yes, and to understand this, you have to understand how the Guaranteed Income Supplement clawback works. The Guaranteed Income Supplement is a support that goes to about one-third of seniors, and for every dollar of income, the amount of money you get from the guaranteed income supplement is reduced. The reduction rate is about 50%. So for every dollar of income, 
you get 50 cents less, at least 50 cents. In some ranges, it's more like a 75% reduction rate. In some income groups, it's 100%. You are quite possibly still going to pay income tax on that RSP withdrawal. So that's another 25 cent cost. If you're a senior that's living in social housing, your rent is usually 30% of your income. So your rent could go up because of money you took out of, the, out of an RSP. So you could take $1,000 out of your RSP and you could actually keep none of it. It's quite possible that through the GIS clawback plus income tax plus increase in your rent, you get no benefit from that money whatsoever on the current rules. And that was one of the reasons for creating TFSAs. TFSAs were designed and are still designed so that when you take money out of your TFSAs, it does not affect your guaranteed income supplement benefit. That measure by itself makes TFSAs hands down, no questions asked, a much, much better saving mechanism for lower income seniors. But for the program to work effectively, people have to make the choice if they're going to be low income at retirement to use a TFSA instead of an RSP. And that's not happening anywhere near as much as it should. And so the guaranteed income supplement is designed to have these clawbacks, so to take money that it would normally give to you and keep it what was sort of the thinking in the way the GIS program is structured? Well, the GIS program is structured that way because it's there to help low-income seniors. And the program is an expensive program already. It's, it's a, about 11 or $12 billion a year program going to about one-third of seniors. If you wanted to have a much lower clawback rate, if instead of using a 50% clawback rate or reduction rate, you had a much lower rate, the cost of the program would balloon because instead of giving the money to only one third of seniors, you'd start giving the money to half of seniors. So it's a conundrum of any support program for low income people that you want to target the money to those most in need. But by doing that, you create a disincentive for employment and for a program like GIS, you create a disincentive for people to save for retirement. So there is this trade-off between an adequate support for low-income seniors that's well-targeted and a clawback rate, which is low enough so there's still a, a reward for employment and a reward for savings, but not so low that makes the program very expensive. The TFSAs were created so that People who are going to be low income in retirement would have some opportunities to save and still keep the GIS. So say I'm a low income saver and I already have most of my savings in an RRSP. What should I do either before retirement or when I hit retirement? Let's assume that you have less than $200,000 in your RRSP. And for GIS, that would be the vast majority. There's there's very few low-income seniors who have 200000 or more in their RSP. If you're not yet 65, therefore you're not yet going to be getting the guaranteed income supplement, you should cash out your RSP over two or three years so that you don't pay more tax than necessary on it and move that money into a TFSA. 
and you'll be much better off because you will get GIS after retirement and you'll get that much more GIS for the rest of your life. There's no doubt about that. The other advantage of TFSAs over RSPs has to do with the rule in the year that you turn 71, you have to take all your RSP funds and put them into a RIF. And the Registered Retirement Income Fund, the RIF, has a requirement that dictates a minimum annual withdrawal from the fund. Every year you have to take out a little bit of money, which is the worst possible way of taking that money out if you're on GIS. So it restricts you and how you can spend the money. So a typical low-income senior has, certainly many of them have no savings whatsoever. They have no RSP, no TFSA. But for those who have managed to save something, amounts like forty, fifty, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 are typical. If they were to take that money and just leave it in their RSP, whatever they take out is going to be subject to a high clawback rate on top of being taxable. And when they turn 71, they're going to be forced to put that money into a RIF in which they're going to get a little bit of money every year, which is the worst possible way to avoid the GIS clawback. So before 65, they would be well advised to take the RSP money out over one or two or three years, pay tax on it, put that money in a TFSA. At age 71, your TFSA doesn't turn into a RIF. You can keep that as a pot of money you can dip into easily at any point, and it's not taxable, and it doesn't affect your GIS, and it doesn't affect your rent. It's just a much more efficient way for you to save for retirement. If you're over 65 and you're on GIS, you should probably cash out your RSP in one year. Even if you have a RIF, cash it all out in one year. You'll, you'll lose GIS for the year after that because you will, your income will be too high. But then you'll get GIS for the rest of your life at a much higher rate. And you are almost certainly far better off. Why are so few low-income people investing in TFSAs? And what do you see as the solution to that? I think it's because people are getting financial advice either around the dinner table for friends or or relatives, or they're going into those cubicles in banks. And for most of the financial advice industry, their advice is geared for people with income. That's how they make their money. They make their money out of people who have lots of money to invest and don't have to worry about the guaranteed income supplement retirement because they're not going to be low income. Most of the financial advice that's out there says maximize your RSP. You you see the advertising every uh, January, February, maximize your RSP. The industry has not learned how to give the individualized advice to a low income senior to say, in your circumstance, actually an RSP is not a good vehicle. You should actually be using a TFSA. There are examples in the financial press I could point to over over the last year where people are actually being given wrong advice. I'm told by people who've done this, when they go into the bank at age 60 or 61, say, I'd like to cash out my RSP and put the money to a TFSA, which I know would be the logical thing for me. The bank will discourage them. So the problem is getting the story out there that while it is reasonable to maximize your RSP contributions for the upper half of the income spectrum, the world is totally different for lower income seniors and they need a different set of advice. And they're not getting that advice, or at least they're not acting as if they get that advice. So 
the paper that was published by IRPP includes a suggestion. Something we've called it a savers credit, which is the government for low-income savers would would match the contributions to a TFSA. So it's like with the RESPs, registered educational savings plans. When you contribute to money to a registered educational savings plan, the government will supplement. If you put in a thousand dollars, it'll add twenty percent. So that's a way of supplementing. I don't know what the right percentage is, but the government could encourage the use of TFSAs by saying, when low-income people use a TFSA, we will supplement it somewhat. The reason that I'm hopeful that that would be would be useful is that then those people in cubicles and banks that are giving advice to people to save in an RSP or a TFSA would have the incentive to say, by the way, if you put the money in a TFSA and you're low income, then um, you'll get a little bit of supplement for government. It gives the bank an incentive to treat the low income saver differently. You said that you're hopeful about that being potentially adopted by a government. With an election coming up, do you see any discussion of these kinds of issues? What's the conversation like? In the last budget, the government brought in a couple changes to how earnings affect your GIS so that the disincentive to be employed if you're a low-income senior is reduced. So that's a hopeful sign in that direction. The governments know that seniors are increasingly employed, and this is the case despite the big disincentive that GIS rules create. So there is some evidence that the government wants to reduce that disincentive. We'd also know that the Parliamentary Budget Office just recently published some articles about the long-run implications of TFSAs on government revenue, that with the money going into TFSAs from higher-income people, that they could get into a serious revenue issue, that this is a large amount of income that's not being taxed. So there may be some interest in making sure that the TFSAs are serving the low-income people and limiting the benefit that goes to higher-income people. What are some of the long-term implications of the current state of affairs with TFSAs? Or what are some of the long-term concerns that you might have? One is just the overall impact on macroeconomics, the impact on tax revenue. But there's also the impact that I mentioned before we started the interview, that it's possible to generate a million-dollar TFSA and still collect GIS. There was a debate about whether or not TFSAs are too generous and also too generous to higher-income people a few years ago when the Conservatives doubled the TFSA contribution rate. And then when the government switched from Conservative back to Liberal, the Liberals reversed that. Right now, the, the lifetime limit is around 63500 In a few years, it'll be $100,000. If you don't do anything, a few years later, it'll be much more. You'll have many more $1 million TFSAs, and those people still collecting GIS. It just makes no sense. And so those people would be collecting GIS because they're not being, that what they take from their TFSA wouldn't be considered income after retirement? TFSA withdrawals don't show up in your tax return. So not only do TFSA withdrawals, they don't affect the OAS clawback, is, you know, the old age security clawback that starts around $75,000. And they don't affect the GIS clawback for low-income seniors. There's an age credit. There's a, there's a tax credit for being old. <laughs> and 
uh, it's income tested. So if you're old and low income, you get an age credit. If you're old and higher income, you don't get an age credit. It doesn't affect that either. So if you if your only source of income is TFSAs, you get access to benefits that are designed to go to low income people. Just to wrap up, we not only have an issue of low income people not accessing the benefits of TFSAs and so then missing out on some of their guaranteed income supplement benefits once they retire. But we have the opposite potentially happening where we have high income people who get to access these low income benefits because they are investing more in TFSAs. That's right. There are people concerned about the long run impact of TFSAs on government revenue because this is a source of income that is being is totally tax free. And so you may want to limit how much money can end up in TFSAs or you might want to limit how much money goes into TFSAs. So you have that concern, but because TFSA withdrawals don't affect your eligibility for some benefits in the tax system designed for low-income seniors, like the guaranteed income supplement, you have the additional insult of having high-income people using TFSAs as their only source of income and accessing benefits that are designed for low-income seniors because they apparently have no income, at least on the tax return, they have no income. And it just puts the social supports for seniors in disrepute. One potential option that you've offered today on the podcast and and in your paper would be to create incentives, financial incentives from the government for low-income seniors to invest in the TFSA, as well as a lifetime limit for high-income savers in terms of how much they can invest in TFSAs. That's right. There are people concerned about the impact on federal tax revenue, plus just a fairness that you you have a tax preference here where a certain source of income is tax-free, which is can have economic benefits and could also have benefits for low-income seniors. But it may be prudent to say, okay, we'll have this benefit, but it's not wide open. At some point, you we're going to limit the contributions to it, TFSAs. And it's easier politically to do that now when the TFSAs have only been in business for 10 years the longer you wait, the longer you're going to have a political problem of saying, okay, we're now going to restrict access to TFSAs. The, the lifetime limit for TFSAs currently is around $63,500. So in a few years, it'll be $100,000. A few more years, it'll be $150,000. You could use those and say, okay, these limits are not going to increase any further. No matter how much money you have, you can only put this much money in a TFSA. That'll be easier to do politically than it would be to say, okay, the lifetime limit is now 300000 but we're going to roll it back. It just seems prudent to do it this way rather than wait till the problem gets too big. And the evidence is those million-dollar TFSAs do exist, and they're increasing in number quite quickly. Richard, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Very happy to do this. Again, thanks so much to Richard Shillington for coming on the podcast. If you'd like to learn more, both his study and his op-ed are online at IRPP.org. As always, to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at policyoptions.irpp.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn under the handle at IRPP. And I also invite you to let me know what you think. Give us a rating or a review on iTunes, 
or tweet me at jbujal and tell me which policy issues you'd like me to cover next. I'm Julie Bujal. Thanks so much for listening.